Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 729 for May 18th, 2022, and I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. This week, I'm very excited to welcome a first-time guest of the show, John Syracuse of the Accidental Tech Podcast, Reconcilable Differences, and Robot or Not. He's also the developer of two very interesting Mac apps, Front and Center and Switch Glass, and uh, I believe he refers to himself slightly as a uh, an annual blogger at hypercritical.co. Is that right, John? I've done a couple of posts this year, but yeah, it's not too frequent these days. <laughs> well, I think you said you missed the previous year, so it still counts as annual, wasn't it? Something like yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, the average the average is inching up. <laughs> it's going on right now. Well, uh, if people haven't uh, known you through any other means, where did you come from? In my world, you just sort of appeared as this fully formed, incredibly knowledgeable Mac person who talks about a long history, but I never saw you on the way. So where do you come from? What, what's your background? What do you well, know? When two people love each other very much. Um, <laughs> no, I just, I, I came from the place that most people come from. Um, uh, I was born on Long Island. That's where I grew up. Um, I, how did I get started in computers? I was interested in computers from a very young age. Uh, my first computer was a VIC-20 that my family rented. Rented? Uh, oh, wow. Yes, because it was too expensive to buy, but you could rent a computer and you would attach it to your television as the monitor. Um, and I think my second computer was a Macintosh in 1984, the original Macintosh. And as you can imagine, going from a VIC-20 to a Mac, quite an upgrade. I had played with Apple IIs uh, in school, and I had taken a course on computers with Apple IIs, and my friends had Commodore 64s and stuff like that, but uh, that, those weren't computers that I owned. So yeah, the Mac, 1984, and that kind of blew my little brain. Uh, <laughs> I started with the I, Mac in 1984 as well. Uh, not the 128K, though, the 512K. Yep. Uh, and uh, so our 128 was eventually uh, upgraded to a plus. You could do when the plus came out, you could do like a, a motherboard upgrade to a plus where they'd swap the floppy drive, the motherboard. Um, but you still have the and they swap the back case, but you still have the same front case. So I still have this, this is up in my attic. It's, it's basically a, a 128K, you know, a Macintosh 128K CRT and front case. But then the back case is the plus upgrade thing. And then the uh, the logic board is the plus upgrade. Anyway. Uh, and then I went from there to an SC30, and then after the SC30 had a Power Mac G3, believe it or not. Oh, no, I, the family had a 6100 in between there. Anyway, I've been using Macs since the beginning, and that has always been my thing. Uh, when I went off to college, I majored in computer engineering because I didn't know if I wanted to do software. I knew I wanted to do computers, but I didn't know if I wanted to do software or hardware. Uh, and my dad has an engineering degree, and I figured, well, he says it's good to have an engineering degree, so I'll do computer engineering. Uh, computer engineering... Is mostly like electrical engineering with computer science courses thrown in, which was which was fine with me. Um, but anyway, during the course of my university studies, I discovered I like software better than hardware. Not that I dislike <laughs> hardware; I did lots of cool hardware stuff, but I like software better. Um, I, I think we're so, we're a lot alike in that. Uh, I have a degree in uh, mechanical engineering, and I was uh, doing uh, computer aided design as a as an engineer, as a real engineer. And then they brought in the first CAD system, and they asked me to test it. This was like going from drafting boards to computer aided mm -hmm. design, and I felt like I went from being a piano player to being a pianist. It was that mind blowing that this was I could make it sing, and that was that was the big shift for me. Yeah, I, I remember doing CAD. That was one of the courses we had had us using CAD, um, and I I loved it. I thought it was great. I, I forget what I was using. It was probably AutoCAD because what else would it be? Um, but there was a command line interface to drawing, uh, oh. and I still kind of miss the power of that. Very often I'm using. I'll just pick up some random like vector program, which I don't obviously I don't use. You know, 
vector design programs for a living at all. So when I try one, it's always like I'm starting from zero again. It's like, oh, how do these things work now? And I just think back to the days of using the CAD program. I was like, I could, because I know what I want. I want this line to be perpendicular to that line. I want it to extend <laughs> until it intersects this line and then stop. You know, I want this thing to be this radius. I know what I want, but getting the little program to do what I want is so hard. And it's snapping to the wrong thing and it's not quite intersecting. And you zoom in and you realize the ends aren't connected. And I, I think man. the people who design those those kind of programs are definitely not engineers. They're artists because uh, because I've, I've had the same problem where I'm, I'm thinking, like, why is not automatically connecting to these two lines or making this 90 degrees. Why is that not a thing? Or why can't I type in that angle? Yeah, why, just why let do, me tell, type the constraint. Yeah, They just make it look right. Like, no, yeah. it needs to be precise. And then you zoom in and see things aren't connected. Anyway, uh, off on a tangent. But yeah, so I went to, I went to, uh, I got my degree in computer engineering. And then after that, I started my uh, 25 year long career as what today the kids would call a full stack web developer. Hmm. Um because I did web development, and I did the back end, I did the front end, and I did the middle end, and I did everything in between. And so they call that a full stack web developer today. Um, uh, but in, you know, and so that's that's kind of where I came from. Where you might have started to hear from me is during the course of my boring old career as a full stack web developer. I started uh, well, I was always sort of active online and participating in you know originally like Usenet news groups and then web bulletin boards and stuff like that. Um, and from there, I was very active in the uh, the Ars Technica forums, which was a web bulletin board. Uh, and I got plucked out of there. They said at Ars, hey, you want to try writing something for our website? And oh. I started writing articles for Ars. And that eventually morphed into writing the reviews of Mac OS X uh, every year for like 15 years. Uh, I wrote a little bit for Macworld. I wrote for a bunch of other publications. And then somewhere towards the tail end of that, I started podcasting. Not as early as you, obviously. But uh, what was like 2010, 2011-ish, I started getting to the world of podcasting because I thought it looked fun and it seemed like something that I could do. Um, and I've continued to do all of those things, more or less. Um, so know, that's where I came you're from. You're kind of an odd combination of somebody who is super nerdy and can also communicate really well. And that's that's an unusual skill. Usually, uh, I worked with engineering, obviously, most of my career, but uh, usually the best engineers... You know, you locked them in a closet and somebody had to be their interpreter for you. But uh, but it seems that you cross over both halves, which I think is I think is unusual. Yeah. When I was in school, um, I did I did fine in school, uh, but English was always my best subject. Uh, it was the one I found the easiest. It's the one I enjoyed the most. Uh, really? It's not particularly good at math. You know, it just it didn't come natural to me. It seemed, might seem weird to you that I'd become an engineering major. Yeah, like, yeah. again, my grades were fine, but it's like. I, I would get easy A's in English and I would struggle for the A in math, right? And I know that sounds like, oh, well, you know, boohoo, whatever. But like, it, but it, it's not, <laughs> math was not, it didn't come natural to me at all, uh, which is why I wasn't sure when I was, before I went to college, am I going to like software? Because everyone said, oh, software, if you're good at math, you'll like that. A computer science is really, you know, math in disguise. And so I wasn't really sure, but uh, actually, you know, writing programs it was very clear to me in my undergraduate years that i would just spend all my free time writing programs for my own amusement and for my friends to use and stuff that it, that was the thing that i like to do so yeah i, I ended up in this profession that's a, with that's my really writing good, skills that's a really Go good ahead. lesson though is is programming is a language and learning english is a language being able to write in a language and it's really more logic than math right i mean maybe you got to be able to count <laughs> well, I mean, there's the, that saying about computer science that I think is mostly true is that uh, computer science, um, what, how does it go? I always mess it up. Like, uh, I don't know, I'll, I'll give you the, the nuts and bolts of it, but this is, it was said in a more poetic, poetic way. But uh, computer science uh, is related to computers the same way astronomy is related to telescopes. 
Right. That it's not like you don't go into astronomy because you're super into telescopes. You're into what the telescopes help you to do. And the same thing if you major in computer okay. science, into algorithms and data structures and all sorts of this theoretical mathematical stuff. And incidentally, you use computers to help you do that. It's not entirely true because there's a little bit more, you know, the, the actual computers have more of an effect on it. But and I guess in the same way in astronomy, the telescopes have a big effect on what you study as well. But it's, in the end, it's not about those things. Uh, but programming is, I mean... I don't know if it, it relied on my English skills, except in so far as, you know, anyone who has worked as a programmer or engineer of any kind probably eventually learns that a lot of your job is about communicating because you're probably not the one who's deciding what you're going to make. Someone else has an idea of what the thing should be and they have to communicate that to you and you have to communicate it to the computer. So being able to communicate and being able to communicate in writing in this age of email is super handy for any kind of career in computers. Right. I, you know, my husband has a degree in electrical engineering and, and he's sort of in opposite land from you is he went in and he, he wanted to try to see, could he get his degree without writing a single paper? And he almost <laughs> made it. He took a, uh, he, he, he messed up though. He had an elective and uh, he chose, it had to be in, in the liberal arts and he chose uh, the logic of chess and it turned uh-huh. out he, he had to write a paper for it. And he still complains to this day that he had to write like a two and a half page paper in college. And then he became a program manager at, a, at the same company where I worked. And he had, what do you do? You write. That's all he had to do. All his, most of his career was ended up writing. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do remember when I was looking at undergraduate degree programs, trying to pick ones that didn't require me to take like a foreign language or something, because I'd, I'd really? taken French during high school and wasn't super into it. And like, again, engineering, like you're, the structure of an engineering degree is so regimented in most schools, you don't have a lot of choices for what classes you're going to take. You're going to take X, Y, and Z. The only thing I regret about my degree is uh, the computer engineering degree program at Boston University, where I went, went super deep into physics. I was taking like uh, physics way above the level I thought was appropriate for an electrical engineering person. It was just absolutely over my head at a certain point. I'm like, help, I don't know the math. I don't understand the physics. It's too much. But uh, that was just a, a brief too deep foray into physics that, I, that I've mostly forgotten. I completely, completely resonate to that. Uh, I chose mechanical engineering over electrical because it had the least amount of chemistry. I didn't want any <laughs> chemistry if I could have chosen it, so I only had to take one quarter. But the the backside of that was I ended up having to take five quarters of physics. And we got out into, into quantum mechanics, and mm-hmm. that's just made up stuff. I mean, that yeah. isn't that's nothing real at all. Uh, Steve was in the class too, and, and he said that his theory, our, our professor was a guy named Dr. Van Hoven, and his theory was that the Russians had infiltrated the university system of the United States and were teaching absolute gibberish to engineers to try to destroy the country. <laughs> it was that bad. Uh, yeah, physics gets real weird when you get out there a ways. So uh, let's see. All right. So that gives us your background and uh, you do all these great podcasts. Um, but in, in listening to you on ATP, and I don't know whether most people listen to you or don't listen to you, so I'm going to keep giving background as I ask the questions. But there's just been a couple of questions I wanted to ask you. One, one of the things you talk about is how regimented you keep your windows on your screen. Every window has its place and it lives there and it never moves. Is that right? I wouldn't use the word regimented. Like I would say that my my way of dealing with Windows in in my experience is different than most people's, and I think part of it is has to do with my early exposure to the Mac. Like you know, it was like yeah, Apple II, uh, Commodore sixty four, Vic twenty, and then right up to the very first Mac. And the time, and I was like nine or ten years old when I got that Mac, right? Um, so I'm 
I'm using a computer with a mouse and a pointer and a menu bar and Windows way before most people, and I'm using it at a very impressionable age, right? And okay. so it's the type of thing where I felt like I was a native to that environment, like that I, I grew up using that environment. And the way the Mac used to work um, and can still work to this day is very different from how uh, Windows works and Windows, Microsoft Windows is most people's first exposure to a mouse and a menu bar and all that stuff just because it was so much more popular than the Mac. It was just the market share was so much bigger. Um, and the Windows way of doing things is the way most people deal with Windows is, you know, zoom everything to full screen, use Alt-Tab to switch between stuff. Like, there's not much actual window management. Yes, Windows exist as little rectangles on your screen, but especially if you've got a small laptop, you probably just want everything to be full screen. Maybe you zoom it out of full screen so you can see two things at once for a second, but then you go back to full screen. That's not how I operate at all. Um, I've always sort of arranged windows on my screen in the same way that you would arrange, you know, a bunch of papers on a desk or a bunch of, you know, tools in a toolbox or paints on a palette or whatever, like spatially arranging these things. Like if you think of any sort of physical world environment where you have a bunch of things that you're working on at once, plus, plus some tools to help you work on those, anybody who does that in the actual physical world, if they have, you know, uh, a toolbox or a, uh, a drafting table even, or like a, a workbench with a bunch of tools where they work on stuff on the workbench or you're assembling things or you're building a model or whatever, you know, you're making a remote control car and you've got like all your screwdrivers and your screws and the pieces. Anybody who works in that type of environment arranges their workspace so that all the stuff is kind of where they need it to be. And that's how I treat my computer, right? No window needs to, especially I have a giant screen here. I would never make a window fill my entire screen, like unless I had content that was, you know, suitable for that. Every window is sized according to the content, and I sort of arrange them, you know, I guess it, it, since they look like a piece of paper, like you'd arrange papers on a desk if you were, you know, doing discovery for a legal proceeding and you had all these different papers and all these things or whatever. So regimented makes it sound like everything is neatly aligned or whatever. Think more of a messy desk with papers all over it. <laughs> so I've, I've tried to live that life, my, my visual concept of what you're describing. And I've, I've tried to do it after listening to you. And within minutes, I'm moving them around. And, and part of it, so we're looking at the same display. I've got a Pro Display XDR. And uh, right now I have Telegram in the upper left corner. But if I was talking to somebody, I would grab that and I would move it into the center. Or I, was, I, I want it to stop bothering me, I'd throw it over on my laptop display over here. I find myself always congealing everything in the center, which means I'm constantly grabbing things and shoving them out of the way and grabbing things and bringing them back in the middle. And I don't know if it's uh, ergonomics. You know, I've heard you guys talk about uh, the fact that a lot of displays are not tall enough for you. My problem is most displays are way too tall for me. So I had to actually get rid of the uh, stand for the XDR because it was four and a half inches above my eye level to get to the top of the screen. So now I have it on the articulated arm. I shove it almost down to where it's touching the table. And I can't really quite focus on what's in the upper left corner. I have to move my head. I'm moving away from mm. the microphone. I have to move all the way over here to look at it. So why would I do that? I would pull it back into the middle where I can see it. Yeah, I don't I do not do the centering thing that you're doing because I can see the edges of my screen. Um, I do have it on the stand, but it is pushed down to the lowest position, but I'm probably considerably taller than you. And, you know, when I, when, I, when I sit up straight, my eye line is pretty much dead to the top of the screen, which is ergonomically more or less how it should be. Uh, but moving a window around is fine. Like, that's exactly how the system works. Again, if you had a bunch of papers on a desk and you were doing stuff, 
uh, that actually it leans more into your centering thing. Like if you're doing that, you're like, okay, this pile over here is the insurance claims, and this pile over here is the transcripts of education, whatever, whatever things you're dealing with. And if you're working on them, you will pull from piles into the center to work on them, maybe put back back in piles, or like you'd pull from this pile. Like moving windows is absolutely part of the thing. Oh, okay. I think the, the only difference between that and what I'm doing is I don't have to pull things into the center to work on them. And so things have a gravity. So, for example, my web browsers, the web, my web browser's gravity is upper, upper left corner, right? So right now, if I look to the upper left, I have a Chrome over there with a bunch of tabs, like a fixed set of tabs in my top left Chrome window, and my, my windows cascade down. Um, Audio Hijack that I'm recording this on, its gravity is lower left, so it's always in the lower left corner. Uh, my dock is on the bottom, uh, Switch Glass, my app is on the upper right. Uh, my terminals, I have a more complicated gravity. I have a big vertical turtle terminal, and then I have a smaller horizontal one to the right, smaller horizontal one to the left, like this. They sort of like these little, this geographies to where things are. They're like those are just wells sort of the anchor points. them there? <laughs> yeah, like they're, yeah. Like, like I think more of them as piles, right? Because there are set piles where things go for the things I work on every day. But if I'm in the middle of a project and I'm doing stuff, so for example, right now, I pulled out the uh, the email message with the Zoom link for this meeting. I pulled that out out of Gmail. You can pop out like a message or whatever because I use the Gmail interface. And I yank that over to the side. Zoom is normally in the upper right, but since we're doing video, so my eyeline matches with the camera, I moved Zoom into the middle so I'm not... So you don't see me looking like that all the time, right? So I do move things around, and I have a notes document here that's below that. I do move things around, and moving things around is fine. But the point is, I can always see more than one window. Like, what's the point in having a monitor this big if you don't get to see more than one thing at a time? And not only can I see more than one thing, I more or less know where the things are. They may be buried like papers in your desk, but because they're known piles of stuff, I can find things. Okay, so that makes me feel a little better. So if, if you're going to do something with Audio Hijack, for example, that's kind of a poor example, but uh, you would drag it up into the center, mess around with it, and then put it, but it goes back to the same location? No, I would not pull Audio Hijack to the center. I would stay okay. where it was. Like, I do use things in the place where they are. Like, my upper left, you know, browser window, that never moves. Um, oh, like, wow. I, again, I pull, I pulled this zoom window in the center for eyelines for the camera, but I, I, if I can, I can, I can use things in the, when they're in the corners like that. Same thing with terminal windows. I can use them where they are, but they are kind of clustered around centrally. Like I don't have a terminal window jammed into the upper right corner because that might be hard to see with the text size. So my terminals are kind of center anchored. Um, my uh, my downloads window from the Finder is like lower right anchored, kind of floating. Like if you put it this way, if you ask me, here's a big rectangle, draw where all your windows are, and I was away from my computer, I could draw pretty approximately where all my important wow. windows are. Here's where my downloads window is, here's my Dropbox window, here's my recordings window, here's my audio hijack window, here's my Chrome, here's my Safari. I can draw them all, and then you could take that and lay it over the screen and turn my computer on, and it would be pretty <laughs> close, but not down to the pixel. And okay. there are piles, and when I do like research you know you I pull out a new chrome window and i open up 50 tabs researching like hdmi cables and looking for reviews of hdmi cables let me pull up a second window and now i'm going to look in youtube and find reviews of hdmi cables let me pull up a third window for this site that reviews hdmi cables and those windows will just be kind of like loose in the air or whatever and then when i'm done doing all that research i just close them all up right um so i'm i'm freeform with it but there are there are piles and there is gravity that does make me feel a little bit better. And one thing that might be a factor in here, uh, and it'd be interesting to hear what the audience thinks about this, is it might be dependent on uh, depth of field. So I had uh, cataract surgery a few years ago, and they asked me what focal length I wanted. And I said, well, 
the distance to my monitor, duh. Mm-hmm. What else? What other? Yeah. What other focal length would you choose, right? And so my my focal length is exactly fifty millimeters, exactly. And mm-hmm. I, it's got a it's it's got a band around it, but I mean, it, so as soon as it gets a little more than fifty over on those sides, that starts to get fuzzy and looks weird. So yeah. uh, if if you've got a longer depth of field, then maybe you can do that to keep things at the side. But it, it feels like I'm really struggling to tell what's going on over in the upper left. Yeah, I just recently got these are my computer glasses. I just recently got to the point where my, if you correct my vision so that it's twenty twenty at long distances, I can't focus on the computer screen anymore. So the computer glasses quite, are magical, aren't they? Yeah, I'm not quite at the point of bifocals or progressive lenses, but I said, all right, so give me give me one pair that is these are these are tuned for my computer, mm-hmm. and I can drive with these. It's just that the street signs are a little bit fuzzy. I'm still legally allowed to drive with them, right? But then I have my driving glasses, which are tuned for I'm twenty twenty at you know hundred yards away or uh, whatever. I, progressives are 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 the way to go, man. And um, and I'll give you a hot tip: Zenni Optical, Z E N N I. Uh, I'm wearing glasses that the last time I bought these at the eye doctor were, they were something like $650. These were $56, same prescription. So you can buy them in all the colors, all the sizes. <laughs> yeah. I always got to get the, uh, the high index ones too, because my eyes are pretty crappy. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I had, uh, I had really crappy eyes before I got my, uh, uh, cataract surgery, which was really awesome. You really want cataract surgery. It's, it, that is really magical stuff. I don't think I do want cataract surgery. <laughs> no, you do. It's like, I have the best, I have the best vision of my life right now. I mean, it's going to crap out eventually, but it, it's yeah. the best I've ever been able to see. But if you had great vision your whole life, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know my pain. <laughs> uh, no, I didn't. I mean, my, my vision has gone, but it was like, it was at worst, it was like 2,500 when I was in high school. And now it's like 2,400, 2,350. So it's actually but, coming in. Yeah. Just when I'm getting old. Yeah. I always thought that's what should happen is that if your, your close-up vision is going to get bad, then, then it should pass through good on its way. Yeah. 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 <laughs> exactly. I'm not sure if the, I'm not sure of the, uh, this is not medical advice. I'm not sure of the actual mechanisms involved. All I can tell you is what has happened to my prescription number as I have aged. <laughs> Well, so uh, when we were talking about depth of field, one of the things I wanted to mention was uh, you've said on the show quite a few times that uh, with the excessive brightness or high brightness values of the ProDisplay XDR, that you can't turn the the, the uh, brightness all the way up because you'd go blind. I keep mine at 100%. I have always kept every every screen I've ever looked at at 100%. And the reason I do that is because it makes your pupil contract which gives you a, a longer depth of field so I can focus better. Yeah, so when you're putting it 100%, though, you're maxing out at 500 nits, right? Right. Is it 500? Was, I thought there was a 650 in there somewhere. I, but right. you're so, right. so the thing with, uh, with the XDR, the, the Apple Pro Display XDR, is uh, its maximum brightness that it can attain is 1,600 nits. Uh, but that's for HDR content. When you're viewing the macOS UI... The way the UI shows is basically 500 nits max. So if you have a, a white window, a white text edit window with no text in it, and you crank that up to quote unquote maximum brightness, like you hit the brightness key in your keyboard until it mm-hmm. goes all the way up, that's 500 right. nits. What right. you probably couldn't handle is if the macOS UI rendered at 1600 nits, right? And that's where I'm saying you probably would feel like that would produce some eye strain and it'll make you go blind, but it would hurt a lot, especially in this room I'm in is not particularly, it's kind of a dim room. Uh, 1600 nits, like the UI displayed in 1600 nits would just be too much for me. And I get what you're saying about the, with the, uh, the pupil dialing. That's what I used to do to be able to see the blackboard. Do you ever make like a tiny hole with your, 
thumb and yeah. forefinger to get so the only uh, light rays that hit your retina are light rays that are coming in straight and you don't get any ones coming in an angle and that lets you uh that that corrects your vision because your your lens focuses wrong when the when the light comes in at an angle but if you only allow the light rays that are coming in straight they'll just go straight through your eyeball and hit your retina <laughs> and things will be more in focus than they were but of course they'll be dimmer as well because you're blocking half the light so are you saying uh, in uh, system preferences, displays, uh, look at the Pro Display XDR. I, might, I have mine set to Pro Display XDR P3 1600 nits. You're right. saying it's so not giving me th- 1300 nits. Uh, well, so it's going to. So the way Apple does it is uh, they do this thing called EDR, which is like extended dynamic range. Um, that's what you should have it set at. It should be the the Pro Display, whatever it's called, the, the 1600 nit ones. But what it's saying is I will render the macOS user interface at 500 nits, but if you play any HDR content or you look at an HDR image, like in photos, it will allow that to go up to 1600 nits. And if you want to see this, uh, a fun way to see it is if you have the Arial screensaver, A-R-I-E-L. Do you have that screensaver installed? Uh, no, I don't, but I know of it. Yeah, it's a screensaver that's like a uh, a third-party externalized version of the screensaver that comes on Apple TV where they like fly you over like pretty scenes in Hawaii and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. You can get that screensaver, put it on your Mac, and set it to only show HDR video. And then when you go in, in system preferences, you go to desktop and screensaver and go to the screensaver thing, and it shows the little preview of the screensaver. And that little preview will show a tiny HDR video from the aerial screensaver. And that little preview will show 1600 nits. That little tiny postage sample shows 1600 nits. And it'll, it'll, first you'll think, oh, did it dim the rest of my screen? No, it's just that you're looking at the really bright postage stamp of like the, the flyover of Hawaii that's 1600 nits. And all your 500 nit stuff suddenly looks darker. And you'll, you'll show this to people and they're like, no, that dimmed the rest of the screen. I'm like, no, I swear it did not dim. The rest of the screen is just as bright as it always was. You're just staring into the light bulb that is the 1600-nit <laughs> HDR video. Um, I, I so have yeah, you have it on that, the right settings. I have, that, I have noticed that on my, um, uh, on my iPhone videos because I do shoot them at HDR. I've definitely noticed all of a sudden everything looks really gray and dim. There's, there's another website. I, I can't remember where it is, uh, but I, I could pull it out. Um, that has a pure white screen, and it says something in mm-hmm. uh, in in HDR, but you can only see it on an HDR display. If you're on anything yep. else, you can't actually read it because it still just looks white. It's just it's, white. Yep, I remember a, that. Yeah, there's whiter than white. But, well, so if you have it set to 1600, it's really giving you 500 on most stuff. Then do you crank the the brightness all the way up on that or no? Let me see what I have it set at. Uh... Uh, I have it about 50%. I mean, I think I have the auto brightness thing too on, like where it's, does it have the light sensor? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, there. that's the bane of my existence. That thing kicks in when I'm telling, I always tell it not to. And it it turns out on my, uh, my new M1 MacBook Pro, it does it all the time. It goes into the dimming. I'm like, why can't I see that? I got to turn it up. Uh, yes, I do have both. So I have automatically adjust for brightness turned on and I have true tone turned on. So I, I'm, I'm allowing the brightness to adjust with the lighting in the room and the lighting in this room is kind of yellowish, uh, and it's kind of dim. So I just allow the monitor to adjust for that. And that's, that's the way I like it for the most part. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, the, I've packed a lot into our agenda here. Those are, those were my big things I wanted to ask you about. And it's, it's been very satisfying for me to get those questions answered. Um, you're an interesting combination of somebody who believes in using tech for its full useful life from your uh, Honda Accord. I was a Honda person until I got into uh, Tesla's, by the way. I never owned another car until I went to Tesla. Um, 
and and you've got a really old TV, and yet you know all this stuff about the new technology, and you love it and, and read about it and research it. And you know a lot about TVs now, but you still haven't upgraded your TV. Is that a good description? Well, I mean, you've, you've laid out the facts correctly, but the characterization that I'm using technology for, like, all of his useful life is that's not the motivation. Like, so oh. what... Okay. What what causes this to happen? What why do I you know why do I have this thing where I got it like you said I got a really old TV but I'm always up on the modern TV tech. What I'm always looking for is essentially the right time to buy. Right when does a product come out that has the right combination of attributes that uh, and usually it has. I will look at the flaws like oh um, this product exists but it has these flaws and. I know enough about the technology roadmap to know that in X number of years, those flaws will be addressed. Or I wouldn't want to buy that product because those flaws seem to be deal killers and I should wait until a new technology comes along that doesn't have those flaws, right? So I'm looking at the right time to buy. And when I find the right time to buy, I buy big, buy the best one that I know of with all the research or whatever. And then I'm back into kind of like hibernation mode where I'm like, When's the next time to buy something really good? I'm not going to buy immediately again because it was just incrementally better. I'm always looking for what is the next technological leap, right? When is the next time to buy? Like my Mac, right? So I had a 2008 Mac Pro. It was an Intel Mac Pro. It was one of the best Macs they ever made. It was very expandable. Great performance, great features. I could run Windows on it. I could play Windows games with a cool video card. I could do Mac stuff. It was great, right? And then there was kind of a dry period where Apple didn't really improve that product that much. And then eventually, you know, sort of gave up on the big tower computer entirely and, made, and gave like the trash can Mac Pro and everything. And I was like, yeah, that's not that's not what I'm looking for. Right. That's not what I want out of a computer. It's not time to buy yet. So, and so I kept using that 2008 Mac Pro for more than 10 years because I was waiting for a Mac to come out from Apple. That was what I wanted from uh, out of a computer uh, but a modern version. And eventually they came out with a 2019 Mac Pro and that's what I bought. And it's very much like the 2008. It's what I wanted. A big computer with very expandable, lots of, uh, you know, things you can put inside it, uh, runs Windows, plays Windows games, like all that stuff or whatever. So that's how I end up with like a 10 year gap in buying computers, despite the fact that I'm super into computers because I'm waiting for the right time to buy. And the same thing with TV. Um, I got, have a, pla a fancy plasma TV, one of the best ones that was ever made uh, right towards the end of plasma. And then what followed it was a kind of a long dry period of not as good LCD, LED backlight televisions. And then they started making OLED televisions, but OLED televisions had some issues, in particular burn-in and brightness issues, right? And I was like, it just doesn't seem like the right time to buy. I didn't want a lesser television. Like immediately after my plasma, if I bought a TV, it would have been not as good. And then eventually the LED LCD TVs, I was like, that's like a flawed technology. I can tell that there are future technologies that will solve a lot of the problems that these have. Why don't I wait for those? And then OLED came out. I'm like, oh, that's the right technology, probably. But these first crop of OLEDs have a couple of problems or whatever. And so, again, I'm not, like, intentionally using my TV for all of its useful life. I'm waiting for the right time to buy. Okay. Okay. That, and you're not one of those people who's... Uh just constantly waiting for the next thing it's the next thing that actually solves everything that you need yeah or at least makes me it's, it's like a feeling right as someone who's you know have an engineering degree and i'm into technology you kind of get a feel for like you know to give an example the m1 macbook air that is an amazing computer like if you're waiting to like if i was into laptops which i'm not but if you're waiting to buy a laptop like it's so clear that like there's there was years and years of laptops that were all pretty okay or whatever but the m1 macbook air came out and 
The performance was amazing. The battery life was amazing. It was a tried, uh, true, tested design that everybody loved. It had the good keyboard on it, right? Had no fan, ran cool all the time. That was the, if you wanted a MacBook Air-ish type of computer, the M1 MacBook Air was the time to buy. The previous year was not the time to buy, nor the year before that, nor the year before that, nor the year before that when they had butterfly <laughs> keyboards. Like, it's so clear, like, oh, finally a machine comes out and it's got just the right combination of attributes. It's, and it's such a clear leap over what came before it. That's the one to buy. So that's interesting you would bring that one up in particular because I saw that as, hmm, not yet. Because it had the compromises that I wasn't willing to put up with of only having one Thunderbolt controller, for example. Yeah, you'd have to be in the market for a MacBook Air class of laptop, right? If you wanted something with more ports or whatever, then that's not what you're looking for. But if you were looking, like saying you say you love the MacBook Air, I don't need a lot of ports, I like it to be super slim or whatever. The previous MacBook Airs were all just inferior in very clear ways, and then there was this huge leap, right? But but you're right that like it's like me not buying the trash can. It's like, well, that's their current Pro Mac, but that's not yeah. what I want from a Pro Mac. So I'm going to wait until they make a machine that's like what I want, right? Yeah, yeah, that that does make sense. So uh, let's see if we can go through uh, and talk about TVs. Right now, you've got the plasma TV. It's a 1080p TV. Is that right? That's right. And so. What are the options, or can you explain the technologies here? This is this is something that I'm not real versant on. I did buy an OLED TV quite a number of years ago, and I think it looks great, but I don't actually know why I bought an OLED TV. So I don't really understand the technologies between that. I look, no, oh, it was real pretty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so for televisions and for any display tech, really, like for most of my life, the problem of displaying images on a computer display has been solved in more or less the same way, which is you have a bunch of pixels, uh, and each one of those pixels is made up of a red, a green, and a blue subpixel. Uh, so if you looked at it with a magnifying glass or a microscope, you'd see like a, something that is, uh, you know, a red light, a green light, and a blue light. And through the magic of combination of light wavelengths, when you get far enough, far enough away from the screen, that red light, green light, and blue light look like one tiny little white light. And that's your pixel, right? And if you turn off all the lights, it's a black pixel. And if you turn on the red, the green, and the blue to maximum, it's a white pixel. And you can make other colors in between by turning the red, the green, and the blue to various levels. If you just turn on the red, it's a red. If you put some red and the blue on, you know, anyway, that's how display technology works. That is the, the way we've been doing it. There's other ways to do it, but that's the way we've been doing it. From CRTs, you know, all the way up to LCD displays, OLEDs, they're all doing something like that. And they, the arrangement of the subpixels changes and the technologies to make the subpixels changes, but that's how it's done. Um, CRT, which most people don't remember, uh, the way of doing that was pretty weird. It would shoot an electron beam against the back of a vacuum tube where there were phosphors that would glow. And it's very complicated if you look at how it was done, like using magnets to bend a beam that's scanning across the thing and painting this. Super strange. But anyway, that's the way we did it, and that had its own set of problems. And obviously, flat panels is what we're all familiar with, but even within that realm, there's lots of different ways to do it. Um, and television followed the same path. I had a big, giant CRT television, and then I had, uh, you know, my plasma television. I'm not going to go into the technology of how plasma works, because it's mostly moot, but it works in a slightly different way than LED, LCD. Um, but once plasmas went away, they were replaced with the uh, the LCD things. And LCD, that was used for on computers then as well, has a bit of a problem as compared to CRTs. The way LCDs worked, especially when plasmas were just going out, was they would have a big backlight, like a big glowing white light that's glowing behind the entire screen. And then they would put in front of it liquid crystals, liquid crystal display, and liquid crystals 
can be changed to allow light through or not allow light through, but, but through electricity. You give it some electricity, allows light to come through, and you you know you turn off electricity. It doesn't anyway. Um, and and then they have like red and green and blue filters for the subpixels, right? But the problem with LCD is when you turn it off, when you say like, hey, LCD, don't allow any light through, it doesn't stop all the light. It stops most of the light, but that backlight is always on back there. So it's like having a, a flashlight and you try to put something in front of the flashlight so the flashlight won't shine through and LCD liquid crystal displays are not quite up to that task. Some light would always leak through. Um, and that was part of the problem with LCDs uh, in the plasma days. We say they have poor black levels, which means that when you try to make the screen black, if the television is turned on, you say, okay, all the LCDs, shut off your, you know, close your shutters and don't allow any light through. But they'd let light through. So you'd look at a mm -hmm. completely black LCD TV in a dark room and you'd see it was glowing. Like it would give off light. It was gray, basically. It was not right. black. Um, and that's a problem for, you know, accurately viewing, uh, you know, video because video, you should be able to make scenes that are actually dark. To give an example, a star field, you know, the beginning of Star Wars or whatever, it's black with pinpricks of light. And on an LCD television, it would be gray with pinpricks of light, mm. especially if you're looking at it in a dark room. You'd be like, ah, shouldn't this be black? Shouldn't space supposed to be black, right? <laughs> but it would be grayish. Uh, and so L uh, LCD tried to solve that problem. One of the first things LCD did is they changed the backlight to use LEDs, which are thinner, more energy efficient, and brighter. But that didn't really help the problem because now you have even more light that you have to block, right? I noticed and it so a lot with, with uh, if in the old days where you'd see a lot of letterboxing, where mm -hmm, it would be yep. part would be black and part would not be. It would be that gray that it was really obvious. Yeah, yeah. That, it, that was... You would ex what you would hope is if you were in a very dark room watching a movie that was letterboxed that you wouldn't see the letterbox parts because you'd just right. see the glowing part of the picture, but instead you'd see the glowing part of the picture and then two gray bars, <laughs> right? And that doesn't make you feel good. Um, so one of the solutions that they tried to do for the LED, LCD televisions is instead of having just a backlight that's on all the time behind the entire TV, how about we break up the backlight into regions, into a, like a bunch of squares, maybe a, a you know, two by two inch square, and so when we show that star field, we'll only turn on the sections of the backlight that are kind of behind stars, right? Uh, and those are called like a, a dynamic backlight or local dimming, they would call it, where it would have a backlight oh. broken into segments. Okay, I've heard of that. And what's the side effect of that? All right, so that's a good idea because, uh, I mean, the best idea is like, hey, when I, when I show a full black uh, screen, it really is black because they just turn off all the backlights with a traditional LCD TV, the backlight never turned off, but now with a, with, you know, local dimming and a dynamic backlight, if there's no, if it, the whole screen is black, it'll just turn off the whole backlight. And there you go. You're in a dark room and it's black and you're great. What but about you look that, at that two star inch square field, though? Right. Well, when you look at the star field, it's got to turn on some of the backlight because the stars have to be bright. Right. Right. And so it looks, okay, this star, which, which section of the backlight is this star over, you know? Uh, hopefully, if you're lucky, it's in the in the middle of a region, but maybe it's at the edge of a region or whatever. And it would just turn on the sections of the backlights that are behind the stars. But the problem with that is, it L LCDs leak light, right? So, and the pinpricks of light of stars have to be bright. So you turn on the backlight really bright behind that star, but then also the region around that star, shaped like <laughs> the region of the backlight, would also glow. And so you get these weird halos around the stars. And sometimes the halos would be off-center because the the region <laughs> of the backlight worse. does not coincide with where the star is, right? 
Right. The star is right in the corner of a backlight region. And like that, from an engineering perspective, this type of solution, you're like, well, this is clever and all, but I see the problems with this. You're never going to make this work. The problem is that LCDs can't block enough light to be truly black. Uh, and your problem is you can't make the sections of the backlight small enough because you keep they would keep adding more and more regions and making them smaller and smaller. But it's like, look, you're never going to win this game until your backlight is the size of a single pixel. <laughs> but that's right. not that's not LCD technology. That's a different thing entirely. And that's what OLED does. OLED, every individual pixel lights up on its own or doesn't light up on its own, right? There is no big backlight. There is no region of backlights. Every single individual subpixel in an OLED television is its own light emitting thing. And so well, you don't have this problem. Like it anymore. solves all the problems. Well, but of course, OLED has its own set of problems. One of them is, is image retention and burn in, which nobody likes, where you, if you show an image on a screen for a long time and then you try to show a different image, the image you were showing previously stays stuck there. And that can be permanent uh, if you're not careful. And early OLEDs had a problem with that. Uh, and, and, and the big problem, problem with I know I I know certainly like with gaming and things like that that would be a problem but uh, the the NBC logo would get burned in right. Yep, or the the like the little ticker thing on like CNN like the little news thing that yeah. goes along the bottom. Or if you watch sports like the sports like the score the current score that's always that in the corner of the screen. Would be there? Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, or if you play video games like me, I, I the uh, I had plasma TV also has image tension problems, and I had the uh, the Destiny uh, HUD burned into my television because there are <laughs> static elements. If you play the same video game for a long time, there are static elements on the screen that can burn in. So that was a problem with OLED, uh, and also it couldn't get as bright as LED LCD um, because L uh, the LED backlights, LED technology. That's one of the great things about it is it gets really really bright, and so L uh, OLEDs could have perfect black levels and the pinpricks of light. But if you were in a very bright, sunny room, maybe the overall brightness of the television couldn't get high enough to overwhelm the sun. Why can't it be bright? And, why can't they be bright? So the 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 brighter you run them, the more power they take, and the more they the more image retention takes effect. Oh, like okay, it's, okay. So you're you know, fighting so you, those two parameters. Exactly. Like if you if you want to reduce image retention, always watch it really dim in a, in a dark room. But of course, if you want it to be bright, now you might burn a little more, and it does take more power. And there are limitations of technology. So. You know, so it seemed like OLED was the solution that was going to come next that's going to solve all these LED LCD problems. And by the way, Plasma did not, also did not have these backlight problems. It was more like tiny CRTs, not quite the same, but it didn't have the backlight problem. So I'd, I just couldn't stand the blooming and the backlight issues in LED LCD. I figured I'll wait till OLED. But then OLED burn-in is scary and they weren't very bright. You know, whole nine yards. Um, so, but still, I think... About now, if you want to get a, like a plain old regular OLED, it's a reasonable time to buy. I almost bought one last year, like Sony's last OLED, uh, OLED last year. I'm like, this seems like a good, it's like the technology has matured. It's kind of a known issue in terms of the burn-in, and I know how to handle it because I've had a plasma TV for a long time. It'll probably be fine. Don't play Destiny. <laughs> oh, no, I took I stopped playing Destiny on my plasma years ago. I have a gaming monitor behind me. That's what I use, and uh, yeah. And so I, I thought it might be time to buy, but then I started, to, you know, there's always a, a pipeline of technologies of, you know, years out of like, what can we use to make screens with? One of the coolest technologies is what's called micro LED, where instead of having little, little sub pixels where you have like a, a sub pixel that produces light and a filter or whatever, you have literal actual, you've seen like an, an LED, like a red or a green right. or a blue LED, like, you know, one that you can pick up and stick in a breadboard, right? Yes, exactly. Imagine those really 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 tiny and make a television out of them right so they're so not sub pixels they're actual pixels they're, a they're actual leds like okay that's why it's called micro led like just like the one you would stick in the breadboard but incredibly tiny 
Um, that also solves your problems because you don't have to have color filters or anything like that. It's like each subpixel is its own LED and it produces light. That technology, if it's coming to televisions, still going to take a while. Um, they make televisions like that, but they cost you know sixty thousand dollars and they're oh, the geez. size of a wall because it's hard to make it's hard to make the LEDs that tiny. And so the TVs get really big, especially if it's a 4K TV, as small as you can make it is like 500 inches or whatever. And then, yeah, it costs 60 grand or whatever. Um, so micro LED is not here yet. When it does come, it will be better than o- OLED because the O in OLED stands for organic. And my understanding is it's the organic compounds that wear out over time that cause burn-in. So the little LED things, I mean, they, they wear out over time too, but not as much as this organic stuff does. So micro LED is not ready. But the thing that was ready, I was surprised by how quickly this came to market because I thought it would still be a few years away, was uh, QD, Quantum Dot OLED. And this year, you can buy a Quantum Dot OLED television. And that's why I didn't buy a TV last year because once I heard that, oh, next year there might be Quantum Dot OLED televisions, I'm like, well, I got to wait to see that because that is probably going to solve a lot of problems that current OLED TVs have. And even though it will be the first generation of Quantum Dot OLEDs, if they're reviewed well, I think that's what I'm going to buy. So as soon as I hear Quantum Dot, I think of quantum mechanics and I think of Dr. Professor Van Hoven and I get the shakes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, luckily you don't have to understand the, and I certainly don't anymore, the the details of the quantum mechanics. But you just have to understand is like what problem is this solving in OLED televisions? Um, so the way modern OLED televisions work, the good ones, the fancy ones uh, with panels made by LG, is they have each each subpixel is basically a white OLED. It's actually a red and a green and a blue OLED stacked on top of each other vertically, but they make white light, right? And then they put color filters in front of them, which sounds terrible. It's like, why would you make a red, a green, and a blue OLED stacked to make a white light and then put a red filter on it? Why don't right. you just have the red OLED down there and not have the filter? Like, what's the point of doing that? Um, but this is like the non-obvious experience of years of making OLEDs if you just have a red OLED subpixel, a green OLED subpixel, and a blue OLED subpixel with no filters in front of them, red and green and blue wear out at different rates. And so oh. over time, the color on your TV will shift. So it's like, you know, oh, because wow. they do wear out over time. And if you, but if you do them as a stack, every single subpixel has a red, a green, and a blue. And so the colors will wear evenly. But, but you can see the inefficiency here. So I'm, I'm stacking a red, a green, and a blue OLED to make white light. Then I'm putting a red filter in front of one, a green filter in front of another, and a blue filter in front of another one. I'm blocking a lot of the light because all of the wavelengths that are not blue are blocked by the blue filter. All of the wavelengths of light that are not green are blocked by the green filter. That's part of the reason OLEDs are dim. You're taking a lot of the light and blocking it with filters. You produce that light in, in, the, in the stack of stuff, but then you're not letting it through. And then the other thing is to make up for the brightness... LG OLEDs have a white subpixel, which has a red and a green and a blue subpixel with no filter in front of it. And the white <laughs> subpixel is, is really big. And the reason they put the white subpixel in there is just to crank the brightness. But as you can imagine, to crank the brightness of your pixel by having this white subpixel, it dilutes the color, right? Oh, it is brighter, right? But you're, you're adding white light to the mix and it makes it less punchy. Your red apple that's supposed to be super bright red, you'd crank the red pixel up as high as you dare to avoid burning. And then you crank up the white pixel, right? And you wash out your red a little bit. That's also got to be energy inefficient too, right? You're producing all this energy to make all this light and then you're turning around going, okay, but I'm not going to let all that light through. Yeah, I mean, it's not as bad as plasma TVs. There have sure. been worse. Tele- CRTs were also not particularly energy efficient. But yeah, like it's, you know, you're wasting energy, you're wasting electricity, you're, you know, producing heat. It's, again, from an engineering perspective, you look at it and you're like, 
this seems like it has a lot of compromises. Um, I and, do remember but, when we had a plasma TV, I walked by it really close by it once, and I felt the heat on my arm yeah. as I walked by. I was like, oh my God, we got to My plasma TV has multiple fans in it. Oh, jeez. So you can put your hand behind it and feel the hand, fans blowing hot air on you, right? Um, oh, so we man. are getting better in terms of energy efficiency, but uh, yeah, and OLED TVs are amazingly thin, so they are pretty amazing technology. So this setup I described with these stacked red, green, and blue subpixels with filters in front of them and a white subpixel, that is was, until QD OLED, state-of-the-art, best picture quality you could get from a television. You'd buy a television with one of these LG, they call it WRGB, which is white, red, green, blue, WRGB oh. uh, OLED panels from LG. Um, and everybody bought these. Sony would buy them, Panasonic would buy them. LG itself would, would buy them and put them into televisions. Uh, and that was the best picture quality you could get. And that's what I almost bought. But when they said QD OLED was coming out, I'm like, okay, this is this is the one I want, assuming the first-gen products are good. And so far, they seem to be good. Um, and so what QD OLED does is... And I, I, I think... See, I'm trying to find a, a good diagram of this. They have blue uh, OLED light up things, blue OLED subpixels. And my understanding is the reason they use blue, we'll become clear in a second with the quantum stuff, is that it is like the highest wavelength, right, of the red, okay. green, and blue things right. or whatever, and has the most energy. All right, so they have blue light emitting layer. And then in front of the, and no white subpixels, so it's just a blue white emitting layer. And so for the red subpixel, they put a red filter in front of the blue light. For the green subpixel, they put a green filter, and for the blue subpixel, they, I think they put a blue filter, or maybe it passes through, I'm not sure, but either way. And it, it, it doesn't sound like that's an improvement. Like, what if you just you just took away the white one? Isn't this thing going to be dimmer or whatever? The magic happens in the filter layer. And the filter layer, rather than being like, you know, you put on red sunglasses and everything looks all red or, you know, whatever, rather than being a filter that just blocks wavelengths of light, it's a filter that uses quantum dots that basically, I don't I'm someone who's a physicist is going to yell, but like, think of it more as sort of converting the light to a different wavelength rather than just blocking the wavelength that don't fit a criteria. It, like the light hits it and it does something and knocks an electron and it drops down to a different energy level and, and emits a, a photon of a particular wavelength based on how many energy levels the electron it's complicated i don't want to get into it but the whole point is think of it as a filter that allows way more of the light to get through so rather than blocking like two-thirds of the light by the red filter the red filter will take almost all of the blue light that's coming into it and turn it into red light so right. you you uh, included a link in the show notes when you talked about this on ATP to a little video about about how this works. And I loved it because it started out super simple. It said, the color red isn't really red. It's light bouncing off mm -hmm. of it, and it looks like red. And it was super simple. And then when it got to the part about uh, the electron coming in, it goes, and then it changes the valence, and da, 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 and, and it just, <laughs> it was like, and then some magic occurs and jump to the next part. Yeah. But that was the part I was really uh, curious about. But for from what I could figure out is as it comes in, it hits the quantum dot, it changes the energy level of the electron, and it's that changing that that changes the, the color of the light, the frequency that comes back. Yep. And it has something to do with the size, too. The, the, it, was it the larger pixels are, are higher frequency? No, lower well, frequency. The quantum dots. Like, I never see a diagram that shows the what these dot. really look like. And, and you can never do that. Like, if you do, you know, take quantum physics, they never want to show you a picture of anything because there's nothing you can picture, right? The whole point is you can't observe it and get anything out of it. But, yeah, my understanding is the quantum dots, the actual tiny little things there, um, vary in size to basically change. Like, why is the red filter the red filter? It's like the size of the quantum dots, I That's think. That's the that big one, I think, because it's low frequency. Yeah, right. right? And, that, and that was also the explanation I heard for why is it a blue backlight? Um 
that it's you can make red and green light from a blue backlight because the blue has higher frequency and so it's easier to get lower frequency stuff out of it whereas okay. if you had like a red backlight or a green backlight it would be harder to make the blue one because you'd have to crank up the energy level too much energy like to put it yeah. okay to move and, it up. Okay. that's my understanding and it also might just be that it is efficient and uh, uh you know inexpensive to make blue uh backlights but anyway the upshot of this is uh you get way more light like you, you're producing all this light in your in your light emitting layer, and your filters allow way more of that light to get through, which is why you don't need a white subpixel anymore. And it's also why the colors are more saturated. So QD OLEDs are like OLEDs, but they're brighter and the colors are more saturated. And potentially they could be lower energy because you don't have to power the white subpixel. But that is that is the and promise block all of the light. <laughs> yeah, that's the promise of QD OLEDs. So they have all the same benefits of OLED before, where every single pixel is individually controlled, perfect black levels but they have better brightness and better color fidelity because they have no white subpixel. Okay, so these are available now. We can drive over to Best Buy and buy one today. So the uh, kind of like the uh, the WRGB panels that were only made by LG, right now the only company in the world that makes QD OLED panels to go into televisions is Samsung. Uh, and Samsung is selling that panel to any television manufacturer that wants to make a TV with it. Uh, the one I would like to buy, which is not yet available to purchase, is from Sony. Sony makes a television. They use these Samsung QD OLED panels in them, and the television is coming out in June, so it should be available soon. Samsung also makes a television with its own QD OLED panel, and you can, I believe, go on Amazon right now and buy that. Um, and I think other manufacturers may be using the panel. This is first-gen stuff. These are the very first Quantum Dot OLED televisions to come out, so it's I'm going to still wait to see your review. But for people who have seen the sort of pre-production models and looked at them and tested them, uh, it seems to be all thumbs up so far. So I am optimistic that oh, cool. that's the television I'm going to get in June is the Sony Quantum Dot OLED television. Are they a uh, million dollars? No, that's the great thing about them. It was another scary thing. When these were coming out, the rumors were like, oh, but they'll probably cost like $8,000 each. But it turns out they, they don't. They're expensive. They're you know more expensive than most other televisions, but not ridiculously so. You can get a 55-inch QD OLED television for some two to $3,000, I think. I think the Samsung one is 2000 and change, and the Sony one is 3000 so that sounds, sounds like a lot right for a television, but I paid a similar price for my plasma TV 10 years ago. So, And that's what I paid for my Sony OLED uh, maybe seven years ago, uh, six years ago. So that that is definitely on the high end, but to get the uh, top of the line TV, that's a, that is really cool. I, I think I understood this, John. Yeah, and it has ramifications for all of our lives because we use screens all the time. We're looking at one right now. We've got them on our phones, on our iPads, and this technology has all those same advantages in those other contexts as well. It's just a question of when it is scaled size-wise, power-wise, price-wise to be appropriate for those environments. But all the things I just described, that's true of the ProDisplay XDR. It has a backlight that is broken up into 275 zones. And if you put a star field on it, it has blooming, right? Like it has all the limitations of the technology it's built on. If the ProDisplay XDR was made with QD OLED screen, it would be a better display. It would have better color. It would ha wouldn't have blooming around things. It would have better black levels. So, what what kind of display am I looking at? That's a it's a, a LED backlit uh, LCD with a dynamic backlight with two hundred and seventy something zones. Wait, it's an LED and it's an LCD. Yeah, the LED. Well, that's the confusing thing. I used to call them LED TVs. When you say something is LED television in the parlance, it's telling you that the backlight is made with with light emitting diodes. 
used okay. to be the backlights were made with cold cathode like tubes kind of think of like little fluorescent things right. the backlight is made with leds and then the screen is an lcd television because it is lcd with you know the you know letting the light through or not or whatever oh, okay right okay. so led lcd you have uh, you have 275 led lights behind your screen and you have an lcd panel in front of it with color filters that lets that light through in varying amounts and the backlight gets turned on and off according to what image is on the screen so there's also QD LCDs, right? That's right. So the quantum dot thing has been in the market for a little while where they would take an LCD television with, you know, have an LED backlight and a liquid crystal display in front of it that is letting the light through or not from the backlight. And the backlight would be the same thing. Either be, the backlight would be over the whole TV or the backlight would be broken up into zones or whatever. Uh, but the color filters were these quantum dot things and the, they would be more efficient color filters. So it didn't solve the problem of, the star field problem and the blooming problem because all that was the same. But what it would do is let more of the backlight light through, blocking less of it. Now, the thing is, LCD, LED TVs already got really bright. Like, that wasn't their problem. That wasn't one of their weaknesses. And yeah, Quantum Dot made it so that you could, you know, either make the television brighter if you really wanted that or also send less power to get the same brightness because the Quantum Dots were a more efficient way to filter the light. Okay. Well, I, I'm surprised I do understand this. I think I'm not sure I could replicate any of it tomorrow. But uh, I really think this was interesting. And I love getting all the background on you. And uh, I, I would highly encourage people to listen to the Accidental Tech Podcast. It is uh, a one that I sit there refreshing going, is it out yet? Is it out yet? Is it out yet? So I really enjoy it. And um, I, I really am happy that you spent this much time with us. If uh, people want to follow you online, how would they do that? That's right in the uh, the theme song of Accidental Tech Podcast. They, they list out our Twitter handles, uh, which was not our idea. Uh, Jonathan Mann, who wrote the song for us, did it on his own. But yeah, if you want to keep up with me, you can follow me on Twitter. It's My handle is just my last name, Syracusa, S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A. Um, and you can check out my website that I occasionally update at hypercritical.co. You know, that, that theme song is just brilliant because there there's something about it. Until I saw you guys at... Um, uh, during WWDC, you guys used to have a, um, a performance, basically, where you did the show live. And I didn't realize that everybody sang along. I thought it was just me. I didn't know. And it's a very catchy tune. It really is. And uh, and I also, not to flatter you too much, but when in the live show, you raised your, your fist up to the sky when you said USA and Syracuse, and I'll be on a walk with my dog and I'll do that hand <laughs> gesture just because it's just like, yeah, except Siri kicks off really often when it hears yeah. Syracuse. I get that. I, I call my wife sweetie sometimes. And so I, if I have my AirPods in, I try to call my wife to do something. Very often Siri answers and I'm not <laughs> married to Siri. It's inappropriate. <laughs> There you go. Well, thank you so much, John, for coming on the show. This was absolutely fabulous. Well, thank you for having me. It was fun. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond. Did you notice there weren't any ads in the show? That's because this show is not ad supported. It's supported by you. If you learned something, or maybe you were just entertained, consider contributing to the Podfeet podcast. You can do that by going over to podfeet.com and look for the big red button that says support the show. When you click that button, you're going to find different ways to contribute. If you like to do a one-time donation, you can click the PayPal button. If you want to make a recurring contribution, click the weekly Patreon button. Or another way to contribute is to record a listener contribution. It's a great way to help the NoSilla Castaways learn from you. If you want to contact me for any reason, you can email me at allison at podfeet.com and you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. 
Maybe you want to talk to other NoSilla castaways. You can do that in our Slack group at podfeet.com slash Slack. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.